Hello, my name is David and welcome back to another episode of Ozpol Explained, where I teach you more than what you ever did at school about the political system of Australia. Unless, of course, your teacher is showing this to you in class, in which case, shout out to them. Anyway, I'll be explaining the role of the Speaker of the House, who they are, what they do, the issues of bias, and also some history elements and scandals. This even includes some tales of murder and execution. First off, what is the role? The Speaker is kind of like the referee of the House of Representatives. It's their responsibility to enforce the rules and standing orders of the House. They, alongside with the President of the Senate, are referred to the Parliament's presiding officers. Which sounds like a cool title, but alas, it does not come with a badge. The authority of the Speaker and the House are indivisible. They are the highest representative of the chamber and they can take any order they consider necessary for the control and management of the house. The speaker works out the running order of debates, procedural matters, and the order in which questions are asked. They're also responsible for calling members to speak and then ensuring that that member is aware that their speech time has expired and even discipline unruly members. Because of this, the Speaker has power to influence the nature of parliamentary debate. So they're, you know, important. There are multiple ways a Speaker can discipline a member who is disruptive. This ranges from being called to order or warned by the Speaker to being ordered to leave the chamber for one hour. And if the member is persistently defying the Speaker, they can be what's called being named, where the speaker literally says their name and then ejects them for 24 hours. Uh, you're too loud, now time out in the corridor and think about what you did. This power is important because sometimes politicians in Parliament just yell like a flock of angry galahs. Watch question time sometime and you'll see that there are often jeers and people yelling and just lots of interruptions. The Speaker has multiple discretionary powers, which is a fancy way of saying that they, you know, won't settle for nonsense. It's up to them to determine what matter is more important than another or rule if a member's argument is irrelevant or tediously repetitive or out of order or deliberately trying to obstruct the business of the house. So you can't just, you know, get up and start talking nonsense for three hours. The speaker will tell you to leave. They also determine if there was a majority between I and no votes for bills. And they decide if members are being offensive and disorderly. So please, no swearing in the house or you might get kicked the heck out of there. You know, back go into the corridor of shame. Go to the timeout corridor. <laughs> the speaker also throws MPs out if they pull stunts or bring in items that they shouldn't have. The current speaker as of 2020, Tony Smith, was once thrown out by his own predecessor, Peter Slipper. He had brought a bucket with him that said, no carbon tax, plant a tree instead on it, which was in reference to then Liberal opposition leader Tony Abbott's slogan. Side note, by the way, tree planting is very important, but it is a myth that, you know, it's a feasible way of stopping climate change without any additional measures like phasing out coal. Still plant trees though, like it's good for ecosystems. The position has formal attire that goes with it, like a Queen's council gown and a judge's wig. 
However, there's no rule stating that this needs to be worn, so recent speakers have chosen to ignore this and dress in regular business clothes, much like other members of the house. Labour speakers have historically chosen not to wear the formal attire, whereas recently, Liberal speakers have also moved away from the traditional dress. From 1940 to 1988, every single speaker wore the judge's wig, as in, they wore the exact same wig. There's only one, and it's on display at the Museum of Democracy in Old Parliament House. I know that I would choose against wearing a formal wig if it had been used by dozens of other people for nearly 50 years straight, because that's, <laughs> that's gross. That's so nasty. I hate other people's hair because it's not as nice as mine. <laughs> Can you wash wigs or do they get beat up if you put them in a washing machine? I don't know. I only know things about politics, not wigs. So, you know, if you're a wig expert, comment down below how you would keep the speaker's head lice free. They don't just make sure that people behave, they have lots of other responsibilities too. They are also involved with appointing the parliamentary librarian and assisting with policy making and other matters of the library committees. Bear with me for a moment. The Parliamentary Library aids members with access to radio, newspaper, television, broadcast, and other forms of media from Canberra, which sounds so exciting to be in. For me, not you, I guess. Like, that's not the most interesting fact, but now you know it, and that's all I need to keep me going. I learn trivia, and then I release it upon the world, as is the terms of the curse that the wizard put on me many years ago. I'm bound to do this, I have to do it. The speaker's duties also include ensuring that members are provided the necessary facilities and resources within the parliamentary house for the proper execution of their duties. So if a service hasn't been provided or is inadequate, a member basically goes to the speaker and is like, hey, fix it. Fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. They also communicate with the Senate on behalf of the House. This role is so important that there's also a deputy speaker who takes over if the speaker is absent, and then also a second deputy, which is yet another backup in case both the speaker and the first deputy are absent. There's no tertiary deputy. If all three of these people are absent, then the clerk of the House informs the House and someone is either elected or the house is adjourned to the next sitting day. So, kind of incredibly integral to the running of the house. That's so much responsibility, you know, like if I'm not there, my whole work shuts down and they have to elect a new me. If I ever stop making YouTube videos, you just go watch Crash Course or SciShow. Like, there's so much educational content out there. I just want to be part of their world. I have red hair, I can look like Ariel. However, the speaker is almost always present for question time, the presentation of the budget, and the leader of the opposition's speech in reply. The house cannot operate without a speaker, so that's why there are all these rules in place to ensure that there is one at any given point in time. Without a speaker, who will send naughty members to the timeout corridor? You know, who? I wish I could tell people to go to the timeout corridor especially in the comments section. They also interact a lot with the Governor General. Because the Speaker is the representative of the House, they have a lot of duties which intersect with the Governor General. I have a video all about the Governor General, by the way, which you've probably seen, I keep recommending it. But let's focus on the Speaker. 
Basically, because they're the top position in the House, they can do a lot of things that the Governor General can in specific circumstances. First off, when they get the position, they inform the Governor General that they have been elected, but this is just a formality, as the Governor General doesn't actually have to approve this. The Governor General is responsible for issuing writs for general elections, however it's the Speaker that deals with by-elections. That's if a seat becomes vacant due to a member resigning, disqualification or death. The Governor General also usually administers the Oath of Affirmation of Allegiance to members when a new Parliament sits, but they can authorise the Speaker to take care of this duty. So if a new member is elected during a by-election, the Speaker can take care of their allegiance oath without the Governor-General having to come in for just one person. Because the Speaker is the highest position in the House, members who wish to resign must do so in writing addressed to the Speaker. But the Speaker can't write a letter to themselves. It's not like what I did every single Valentine's Day when I was a teenager to pretend that I wasn't so alone. So the Speaker has to write to the Governor-General if they wish to resign. They then continue on as Speaker until a new person fills their role. If there's a question regarding the qualifications of a member or a vacancy, this may be referred to the Court of Disputed Returns. It's up to the Speaker to send the Court a statement of the question the House wishes to have resolved and send any relevant documents to the case. So we've talked a lot about how the Speaker works, but how do they get the role? The Speaker is a member of the House and must be first elected to Parliament. After every election, the members of the House then nominate and vote to elect one of them to become the Speaker. Usually there's only one or two nominations for Speaker. Because it requires a majority to elect, normally the government in power is the one who gets to choose. The opposition can put forward a nomination for their choice of Speaker, but sometimes Speakers just get elected unopposed. Of course, this isn't a rule. Lots of things aren't a rule. This is just what normally happens. In 1940, Labour won government, but the United Australia Party member Walter Nahn continued on as Speaker. Quick note though, the United Australia Party is the predecessor to the Liberal Party and existed from 1931 to 1945. It is not at all related to the United Australia Party that Clive Palmer made. Pauline Hanson also for a while had a Pauline's United Australia party. Turns out you can just name your party after another if it no longer exists. So I guess I could just make the protectionist party again. There are rules by the way. You can't put the word independent in the title of your political party and it has to be six words or less and it cannot be obscene. I will leave it up to you to make jokes about political party names that you can't legally register. Once the speaker is chosen, they, unless they resign, remain part of a political party. But they don't vote on bills unless there is a tie. This is specified in section 40 of the Constitution. In 1913, the Commonwealth Liberal Party narrowly won by just one seat against Labour, 38 to 37. The Commonwealth Liberal Party offered to let the Labour Speaker, Charles MacDonald, to keep the position, which he declined. This meant that their 38 went down to 37 because they had to supply a Speaker, which led to them relying on the Speaker's tiebreaker vote on many occasions. Where does the position come from? Historically, like a lot of things, we get the role from the Westminster tradition. Remarkably, the position of Speaker is 
hundreds of years older than the role of Prime Minister, and it predates to 1377. While the position is currently one of great esteem, it wasn't always seen as a favourable position because uh, the position came with the possibility of being executed, murdered, imprisoned, impeached, or even worse, expelled. Historically, the problem was that the Speaker was the middleman between the House of Commons and the King and Lords. So this meant that telling the King that legislation had been rejected risked angering the King, and informing the House that the King was unhappy risked angering the House of Commons. So, given the tension and danger of being the middleman between powerful and sometimes opposing forces, it's no surprise that one of the first speakers, Sir Peter Delamar, was imprisoned by John of Gaunt, the son of Edward III. Fun fact that isn't that fun, seven speakers were executed, killed in battle, or murdered between 1394 and 1534. As a result, the Speaker was literally dragged to the chair to force them to accept the position. This has turned into a fun little tradition that we still see in parliaments around the world, like in the UK and Canada, as well as in Australia, where a newly elected Speaker is escorted to the chair by their arms, like they're being dragged but in a nice way, with clapping and cheering. Ah, don't you just love it when like several murders become something quaint and fun for the whole house? Now, thankfully no one gets so mad at the speaker as to literally murder them, but I mean, who is gonna stop the queen if she pulls a gun out, you know? Are you going to spear tackle her? It'd be like tackling grandma. Okay, new sport idea. It's AFL, but no one is brave enough to tackle the queen and also she has a gun. I don't like sports, but I would watch that, and only that, forever. Despite Australia taking a lot of things from the British, our Speaker works differently to theirs. The Speaker in the UK is an independent role where the Speaker resigns from their party to be impartial. But in Australia, the Speaker doesn't. In both systems, whoever is the Speaker must continue to engage with their electorates like a regular MP and face re-election during a general election. In the British system, the Speaker serves for five to seven years and then resigns from Parliament entirely. In Australia, the Speaker can serve for much longer, though usually doesn't, and once their time in Speaker is up, they don't need to resign. As the Speaker is usually chosen by the party with a majority, this can create issues of bias. After all, if you're a long-time member of a political party and you've been given the power to oversee their conduct as well as the conduct of the opposition and physically expel members from the chamber, then there can sometimes be a problem there. Look, bias is part of being human. It's difficult not to be biased, especially if you have a long-standing party loyalty and were elected after campaigning strongly for what that party stood for. So it's expected that the Speaker of the House would be biased to a certain extent. However, it's clear that some Speakers have made a conscious effort to remove themselves from that party loyalty, and others have not. Bronwyn Bishop, for example, was Speaker of the House from 2013 to 2015, and had been a Liberal MP for almost 30 years. During that time, she ejected a record 400 MPs, and 393 of those were members of the Labour Party, whereas she'd 
only ejected seven Coalition MPs. This naturally sparked a lot of criticisms that she was unfairly biased, which is understandable given that she statistically was 56 times more likely to eject a member of the Labour Party than one from her own. But it isn't that uncommon for members of the opposition to be disciplined by the Speaker more often than the members of the government. And this isn't necessarily bias. Non-government members, regardless of which party it is, tend to account for an average of 91% of members disciplined. Even speakers that have been considered more impartial than others still have this statistical weight towards disciplining the opposition more often. Bishop, however, instead of that 91 or less percent, disciplined opposition members a whopping 98.25% of the time. So you can see why this sparked the criticism that she was more biased than her predecessors. Of course, this cuts both ways. Labour's Leo McClee faced five motions of no confidence while Speaker or Deputy Speaker under the Keating government. Yeah, Speakers can be subject to motions of no confidence, much like a Prime Minister. Labour wanted a motion of no confidence against Bronwyn Bishop after she kicked out an MP for laughing, but failed. The issue of impartiality isn't always a constant focus of the position though. Sometimes even the opposition seems pretty content about how a member takes on the spirit of the role properly. The very first speaker, for example, Frederick Holder, was so determined to be impartial and emulate the British model that he quit his party and ran for re-election as an independent. Former Liberal leader turned speaker Billy Snedden also took inspiration from the British model. He wished that Australia would adopt the traditions of the Westminster model, involving resignation and limited terms for speakers, but was unsuccessful in changing the system. Snedden followed through with his word when he resigned in 1983 after seven years in the role. He did not become an independent but remained a member of the Liberal Party, however, unlike Holder. Snedden did refrain from attending party meetings except when major issues of principle were being discussed, so at least tried to remove himself, at least partially, from his party. Usually, speakers don't participate in the debate of bills, but they have participated in rare occasions. Specifically, they debate when bills are relevant to the position of speaker. In the Westminster model, the speaker's seat isn't contested during elections. Whereas in Australia, there's no similar convention and incumbent speakers have lost their seats during elections. Why don't we follow the British on this? Well, there's problems with not contesting a speaker's seat during an election. One is an issue of size. Heh. For once, size does matter. Australia's parliament is quite small compared to the House of Commons, so sacrificing one seat might cause issues for a government's viability. The first Australian parliament in 1901 had only 75 seats in the House of Representatives, whereas the British House of Commons at the same time had 670. You can see with how such few numbers comparatively each person counts. It also means that there's no reason for the constituents of the Speaker's electorate to cast a vote, 
and thus robbing them of their right. The constitution states that members should be chosen by the people, so if you remove their choice by ensuring that someone basically has a guaranteed seat, that becomes a bit of a constitutional issue. Major parties could agree not to contest, but then minor parties and independents couldn't be stopped. So it's not really worthwhile engaging in the same tradition. Motions of no confidence. When the speaker wants to eject an MP for a full 24 hours, they put forward a motion. These motions can be defeated, like in 1975 when Speaker Jim Cope named Clyde Cameron. Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, instead of upholding the speaker's decision to discipline the unruly Cameron, told the member to sit down. The opposition leader called for a motion and it was narrowly defeated. Having both been insulted and having lost control of the house, Cope rose from his position in the chair and resigned on the spot. The reverse of this happened in 2011, during Julia Gillard's hung parliament, when Labour Speaker Harry Jenkins moved to have opposition backbencher Bob Baldwin ejected for rowdy behaviour, the coalition won to defeat the motion with the support of, in part, independent MP Rob Oakeshott. This meant that the House, from a technical perspective, had lost confidence in the Speaker. However, opposition leader Tony Abbott moved for a motion of confidence in the Speaker, which naturally won and Jenkins didn't resign. Liberal MP Christopher Pine commented, the truth is the opposition believes that Harry Jenkins is doing a good job as Speaker, and in the circumstances of a hung parliament, it is a particularly difficult job. If we want a little bit of a scandal, like I promised earlier, let's bring up Sol Rosevere, the 11th Speaker of the House. He was given the position during World War II and was said to be frequently drunk while in the chair, but remarkably good at hiding it. He also allowed illegal gambling in the house, which he participated in. What a, uh, what a bad choice. He died in 1953, and when the clergyman at his funeral described him as a great national leader and statesman, a devout Christian, and a highly moral character, a fellow Labour MP, Fred Daly, audibly remarked, by God, we're burying the wrong man. <laughs> Oof, sick burn. His widow and children were right there. Yeah, if I could describe my ideal funeral, it'd be my friends and colleagues roasting me as I get lowered into the ground. We're here to mourn the loss of our dear friend David. But thank God he's finally shut up about politics, am I right, fellas? We never have to hear the word conventionally ever again. Security and the parliamentary zone. Every time I do a deep dive into some element of politics on the surface, like, oh yeah, this person has this basic role. Neat. Like, you know, if, if I said the speaker is the referee of the house, you'd be like, cool. But then you wouldn't have learned all these other things. So as you dig further and deeper, you find that there's a lot of really extra specific rules. And that's what I personally find really rewarding about my own personal hobby of reading about politics and hopefully teaching you about politics. Anyway, the deep dive. So the presiding officers, which is the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, they have the responsibility of security over the parliamentary zone. Parliament is the declared zone. 
What this means is that it requires the approval of both houses for any new building or work to happen in the area. The zone may include the building, but not the streets surrounding Parliament. Bear with me. Ordinary criminal laws apply within Parliament House, but the grounds are under the exclusive jurisdiction of the presiding officers. This means that the police are subject to the authority of the Speaker while in the House. Police therefore don't make arrests, conduct investigations, or execute any process in the precincts without the consultation and consent of the presiding officers. Wow. Imagine like telling police officer like, shoo, into the timeout corridor. Maybe that's how Sol Roosevelt didn't get arrested for illegal gambling. The police were like, ah, oh, I can't go in unless he tells me I'm allowed to. Ah, oh, but I want to arrest him. Why does the system work like this? The speaker is informed beforehand if the police have a warrant to search the premises. Police though are allowed to remove structures erected by demonstrators without a permit in the parliamentary zone. In 2014, the presiding officers authorized the AFP to be the lead agency for operational security. That being said, the sergeant at arms is still charged with maintaining security of the house and is able to escort out and take into custody visitors who are causing a disruption or a disturbance. Similarly, the Usher of the Black Rod can do the same in the Senate. The Usher of the Black Rod has a literal big black rod, which I don't imagine they actually use to enforce order, but I've never tested this. So give me money on Patreon so I can fly to Canberra and do research. How long will it take before the Usher of the Black Rod will physically beat me up with their rod to stop me? from physically interrupting the Senate. I will find out. Now that'll get some views on YouTube. The Speaker is responsible for adjourning the House. Adjourning the House is basically a fancy way of saying to stop for the day. It can happen either by a motion put forward by a minister or the Speaker can propose the question that the House now adjourns. The Speaker can also adjourn it on certain circumstances which include, but are not limited to, if there's no quorum which means at least a fifth of the members of the house need to be present for the house to operate. For a meal break, if requested to do so, if the house is waiting on a bill or message from the Senate, for special ceremonial circumstances, or in the case of grave disorder. Spooky! By grave disorder, I don't mean disorganized cemetery, though that is a good band name. I mean if things get too rowdy. The speaker can eject basically half the house if they so choose, and there was an instance where the speaker, Snedden, had the option of ejecting every single member of the Labour Party. They were chanting liar at Liberal leader Malcolm Fraser. Snedden would have had to have named every single member one by one, and then by that point, the house couldn't really have functioned properly. And so he decided that that was just too much work and chose against it. So there you have it to recap. The speaker is there from the start of the sitting day until the end, and they are an integral part of the operation of parliament. They're also a member of the house elected like any other politician, but 
cannot vote on bills unless there is a tie. They are charged with keeping order in the house and they can send unruly MPs to what I like to call the timeout corridor. They're the highest representative of the house and so communicate on its behalf with the Senate and the Governor General. They're in charge of whether or not to adjourn the house and they are subject to motions of no confidence. Though the role does originate from the British system, there are only some of our traditions shared with them and a lot that aren't. So thank you very much for watching. I hope you enjoyed and learned a lot. Comment down below what you would like to learn about next. Please like, comment, share, subscribe, all those sort of things. And if you would love to support this channel, there is a Patreon in the description. Also in the description is a link to a copy of the script so you can see all the citations that I used to make this video. So you can either use that for assignments or learn more about the subject. In the script is a link to a 28,000 word long paper on the Parliamentary House website, which I read most of, but it did actually reach a point where I was like, Okay, now even I find this boring. There is no way I'm putting this in a video. There is still more to learn about what the speaker does. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time. Goodbye.